looking for the king of podcasts, you're at the wrong channel. Looking for good ideas for life, you are far from good hands. If you think the listener is always right, you are far from the right place. Hosted by Northeasterner by birth, a rebel by choice. If you want a host that floats between love and madness, then play on and listen to Crazy Train Radio. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Mmm, I love scotch. I love scotch. Scotch is got scotch. Here it goes down. Down into my belly. Mm -mm Mmm-mm-mm. Don't mess with me, I'm one crazy mofo. With over 30 years of experience and a superb reputation for being a detail-oriented company, Lacey Cleaning has some of the highest work standards in the cleaning business. That's the fact, Jack! Whether it's carpet cleaning, tile, grout cleaning, new construction cleanup, rental turnovers, vent and duct cleaning, odor elimination, office and or business cleaning, power washing, residential cleaning, you name it, they do it. Check them out to contact them today, LaceyCleaning at gmail.com or call them at 609-709-8536. That's what I'm talking about. Hey, I know we have a lot of horror fans that listen to our shows and I know things have been tough for everybody across the board these past six or seven months with what's been going on in the real world but I wanted to make a suggestion to you horror fans because I know part of the normal routine year in and year out is to attend different conventions to meet some of your favorite horror stars however none of us have been able to do that because of obvious reasons but I do have a little suggestion for you SignatureHorror.com Now, some may ask, what is that? Well, 
they obtained autographs for the fans from some of their favorite stars, from some of their favorite franchises, whether it be the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, and many more. They have different options such as, besides getting their autographs, you can do live Zoom calls with your favorite stars, you can do personalized videos for people, greetings of some sort. They just have many options. So, if you're looking for to spend some money that you may have spent at conventions, check them out and see the options they have. SignatureHorror.com That's right, SignatureHorror.com Hey everybody, this is Kenny Lee Lewis from the Steve Miller Band. I just want to tell you that you should be listening to Crazy Train Radio. Going into the deep mining here and pulling out some gems of uh, rock and roll history. And, you know, you should uh, tune in whenever you can. Great, great radio program here on the internet. And he knows how to bring out the best things. Thanks. Hey folks, it's your least favorite host in a podcast world, the croc, Jonathan Steele. And boy, do we have a good one for you today. The man on the Zoom line right now is very accomplished as a musician. He was born in Pasadena, but raised in Sacramento. He is a self-taught musician. He does everything from guitar to bass to vocals. He was an accomplished studio guitarist and bassist for over 30 years, but this man has been a regular touring member, producer, and writer for the Steve Miller Band since 1982. Some of his other credits also include playing with the likes of Bonnie Raitt, Eddie Money, Dave Mason, Billy Preston, Peter Frampton, Boss Skaggs, Brian Wilson, he's done it all. Check out his website at KennyLeeLewis.com on Twitter at KennyLeeLewis. Yes, I said it. The gentleman's name is Kenny Lee Lewis. Kenny, how you doing? First and foremost, Mr. Lewis, how are you and where are you currently with everybody being uh, cramped up with COVID and such? Well, unfortunately, um, hi everyone, Kenny Lee Lewis. Um, I'm in San Luis Obispo, California, which is on the coast. It's uh, a mission town that's between LA and San Francisco, kind of like right in the middle. And it's wine country. It looks kind of like Italy around here, or sometimes even people say it looks like Ireland sometimes. We're pretty green. We get a lot of fog in the morning. Uh, you know, kind of San Francisco weather, and which is the reason why I moved up here, because I lived in LA for so many years. And, you know, it was just so bloody hot down there all the time that it was nice to come up here and get into some cooler weather and less traffic, less crime, you know. Uh, I was able to do that, of course, because I was touring with the Steve Miller Band and I didn't have to necessarily be in the studio scene as much because the business had kind of dried up. So we moved up here about 14 years ago. Well, and I'm not, well, that's the other thing I'm thinking about before I ask the next question, but you were, how you in terms of the fires and such, because I know there was a bunch of stuff like that going on, and unfortunately, annually in California there. Uh, well, the fires are far away from here. Uh, we, uh, 
like I said, we have fog every morning in this particular valley. We're right down from Morro Bay. Um, it's about 10 minutes to the west. And uh, it just, it, it comes in in the morning. It just keeps everything wet, you know, so it never ignites. Uh, we have brush. We have dry grass, but it just never ignites. Uh, I've been here for 14 years. We've never had a fire here. But, you know, not but 25 minutes north over the Cuesta Pass, you can start getting up a, a Tascadero. And you get some fires up in there. We've had some fires at Lake... Uh, uh, God, I don't remember all the names of the lakes. They're Nacimiento and all those lakes. Um, but um, those were the those are the problem areas a few years ago. Um, but even down south, we haven't had any problems. Even Santa Maria never had any problems. Uh, I'd say Santa Inez was probably the closest that it's come, and that's about an hour south. So we're very fortunate for that. Um, and that's another reason why I moved out of LA, because I was in Santa Clarita prior to this, and we're getting all kinds of fires around there every year. And I just said, you know what? I'm going to get out of here. And uh, But it's not uncommon. I mean, the Native American name for the Los Angeles Basin in their native tongue, which is um, Chumash, is smoke. That's the actual name that they had for that area because, you know, uh, lightning would come in, light the brush, fires would happen, it would retill the soil. Uh, it was not a bad thing, especially when there wasn't a lot of people living here. Uh, so this area has just been notorious for fires, you know, ever since before, you know, European settlers came here. Oh yeah, for sure. But, uh, where is, cause I'm not great within specific towns. I know you grew up in Sacramento, which is Northern California. Yeah, that's where I grew up. And, uh, Pas where's, but born in Pasadena being uh, first day new mouth, uh, Pasadena, where's that? Uh, on the spectrum. In that's right in Los Angeles. I mean, that's oh, right. Okay. That's close to San Gabriel, which is where that mission was, which was the, one of the original settlements of Los Angeles. And my father actually was born in that area. He was born in a town called Alhambra, which was right next to the mission. But Pasadena was just, you know, another town up the road there that's kind of north and east of Los Angeles. Um, that's kind of where the Rose Parade starts every year, you know, mm -hmm. on Colorado there. Uh, very nice neighborhood, very old, um, kind of stodgy, and you know it's like the burbs, the ups, up, upscale burbs of upper saddle, upper saddle Creek of New York. This would be the upper saddle Creek of Los Angeles, <laughs> <laughs> off the one ten yeah. freeway. But yeah, um, but you know I was living in Temple City at the time. Well, I wasn't living anywhere. I was in my mom's womb. Uh, my family was living in Temple City at the time, which is not far from there, and that was just a hospital that I ended up uh, getting born at, which was St. Luke's, which is kind of interesting because the manager from the Steve Miller band was born there too, which is just a coincidence. We always talk about that. It's pretty funny. But uh, so that's in Los Angeles proper. Well, you, and you've mentioned a couple of times here being with the Steve Miller band, but, and I'll jump into that for, in a second, but you, we were kind of chit chatting as you were heating up your coffee there. Yeah. And you said you did a, show in pennsylvania last week yes and that's where my mother's from believe it or not so i'm a legacy to pennsylvania as well okay now i'm curious to know and you can maybe tell us about that show you did but i'm the thing for me being into music and i guess a music nerd in some senses okay uh do you have like the show last week a specific guitar rig set up for shows like that that you would use with the Steve Miller on a full-blown tour setup, or do you try to do it uh, differently per show? 
Well, I mentioned earlier, and I don't know whether we got it on here, but uh, Lidditz, Pennsylvania is a small town in Lancaster County, not far from, you know, all the Amish people and stuff. It's become sort of a rock and roll mecca center for tour the touring business. They have huge sound stages there. Uh, Claire Brothers is there, uh, and Claire Brothers did our backline for this gig. And so they just, you know, asked us what we wanted, and we gave them a backline list of the kind of gear and amps and pedals and stuff we wanted. And they had it all on hand, and they were able to have it all there. We didn't have to take anything, which is great. And uh, I did take one guitar because I just have a particular Stratocaster I really like that I have a road case for. So I brought that. They had a backup Strat for me and a Tele, and uh, we tuned them up, got them all tuned in. I never broke a string, so I didn't have to use them, but they were there. But uh, it was nice. I did take my pedal board, too, and I think our guitar play, other guitar player, he brought his own pedals, too. Uh, just because, you know, we like the way it's set up. and uh, That's kind of a tough thing to get out of backline as a pedal board, because that's kind of a personal thing. But all the other stuff, the drums, amps, keyboards, you know, all the sound system, everything, that was all provided. Well, you mentioned Strat there that you uh, brought with you because you have the case and everything for it. Yep, yep. Is, there, is that your go-to guitar that you like yeah, to play? Yeah, I, I bought a custom shop Relic 1960 uh, about seven, eight years ago, and it's probably the best guitar I've ever had. And I had an original 63 as well that got stolen many years ago, and I've replaced it with this one. But it's it's just like a real 60. I mean, it's you know like a $60,000, $70,000 guitar. And uh, it just plays in tune and plays so well, and the pickups are all set up right by the team build at Fender that I, I don't really need to, you know, look for anything else. It's my holy grail guitar right now. It might change in a couple of years. Who knows? But right now, it's the one that's talking to me. And uh, so I just brought that so I could feel comfortable on it. Well, I saw something video-wise with you from maybe 17 or 18 for a bass website. Because you played guitar and bass. and you know, Yeah, I'm playing bass what? with Steve now, but I'm, I was his guitar player for 28 years as well. And you were talking in that video that I saw about a five-string bass. Right. Uh, is that normal or is that a uh, just something you came across, like this other favorite guitar of yours? And the five-string bass? Talk about? Yeah, are you bases are, are very popular and very common in the business. The, the, the main reason is that a lot of artists and singers will change keys depending upon their age or their health or just wanting a different approach to the arrangement. And if they go into a lower key other than, say, E, uh, <laughs> D or E, um, like E flat or D, um, a four string bass, the bass note is kind of higher up on the sound scale and you know uh, modern music nowadays has a lot more subsonic bass frequencies going on mainly because of you know digital electronics and you know synthesizers whatnot so when it's when an artist goes to lower key you want to be able to hit the low note of the tonic pitch without it sounding like a little tonk, 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 knocking on a door or something. You want to have some balls and some bass, you know. So the five string allows you to, you know, like an E flat and D, even down to low C, to be able to really, really have some nice low end of the band, To which is, and the sound systems are so good nowadays and so sophisticated, they can handle that low sub frequency, and it really sounds good live. And it, it just adds more spectrum to the audio spectrum for the audience and gives them a little more bang for the buck. 
So that's one of the reasons why we play five strings. Now, our bass player this last weekend, he, he asked for a four and a five because he's so used to the four. He doesn't really want to play anything but a four normally. Um, I've sort of gotten so used to the five now. I'll play a, four, a five string all night long. I don't care. I've just gotten used to it. Um, so it's just a matter of taste, but that's, it's very, they're very common. Well, you mentioned in that same uh, chat that as a guitar player, you don't have big fingers here. No. And how much of a difference is it to go from something that has a, I could see this now on the video as you showed that. Yeah. Uh, how big of a difference is that to go from something that's a four string to a five string as far as uh, not having long fingers? And, it's, and it was an issue too, because when I switched to five with Steve, I was playing a, um, I was. I wanted to start with a five right off the bat, so I got a Music Man, which are actually right here in my hometown of San Luis Obispo, which was a a reissue '70s model where they, for the first time they ever made a five string, they just got a really nice big wide four string neck, which had the same pitch as the regular four string P bass, uh, precision bass, and they just made a new nut for it and got a new bridge and they just cut it for five string. The only problem was it just wasn't quite wide enough to get the strings spread out enough so you can get your fingers in there. And I used that for the first year, but then I realized I needed to get something that was you know, more like a regular five. But you don't want something that's too wide. And a lot of the Fender basses and a lot of the, the boutique handmade fancy basses that a lot of people use are a little too wide at the 12th fret for me if I want to go up high on the neck. They just end up getting like a skateboard up there or something. You know? So it was hard finding five-string basses that were just that perfect size, you know, uh, right at the 12th fret, where I could feel comfortable yet have spacing so my fingers could get in there. So I went, I went with a couple different companies. I had one called a Cot, a K-O-T from Oregon. It was good. I used that for a while, but it wasn't very roadworthy. Um, and then so I ended up looking again, and I found a company out of Germany called Sandberg. And at that time, they were making Fender look-alike bases. In fact, the one that I chose was called a California Special or something. And it looked just like a regular P base, but it was a five, but it was really well built, good pickups, great output jack. I could bang it around. I, they had a Swamp Ash model uh, that was a lot lighter because there's a little more beef, you know, on a five string. So I ended up going with that and it's much more roadworthy. And that's the one I use today with Steve is a Sandberg. I have two of them. I have a Swamp Ash natural and a white, you know, uh, alder one. And uh, they're just fantastic. I love them. And they sound, you know, they're split pickup. They sound just like a P bass. I grew up on a P bass, and that's the sound that Lonnie Turner, the original bass player for Steve Miller, was using on all of the hit records that, that Steve made. So in order to get that punch and that sound and that, that, that feel, you, you pretty much have to use a P bass with the Miller band in order for it to sound correct. Well, you mentioned uh, before we got into that about, you know, artists, changing notes and different things depending on age and health and all that stuff. Are you a guy, because you have done writing over the years and a lot of your stuff with Steve ended up starting with the Abracadabra album and all that fun stuff. Are you a guy that is flexible in terms of the music changing over the years, maybe with the notes and what you were hitting at or are you, this is how it was written, this is how it has to be played? 
Well, I was a studio musician prior to getting in Steve's band. I was playing on all kinds of stuff all over the place. Um, you know, everything from, you know, Rocky movies to Ultraman animation, Japanese films, to, you know, hamburger commercials and, you know, hit records, you know, playing, you know, I mean, I played on like Eddie Money, Dave Mason, uh, Billy Preston, you know, just uh, Billy Burnett, you know, played on his first solo album, you know, he later got into Fleetwood Mac, but he, he and I became good friends and he introduced me to a lot of people. Um, my wife, Diane Steinberg-Lewis, the reason why I got in the business is she was an advocate for me to play bass on her second album on ABC. And that, that was great because I got to meet Jeff McCarroll and Jay Graydon and, you know, um, you know, David Page, you know, and they hadn't even put Toto together yet. This was about 76, 77. And uh, they liked my bass playing so much, they brought me in. And so I was able to start working a lot. So to answer your question, I'm kind of already trained to change with the times and play any kind of style and to read notation, which I do. And uh, I don't really think about that. Uh, I think what you might be talking about is songwriting. I think you might be talking about the styles of songs and, and the, the genres that have come over the last <laughs> four decades I've been doing this. Uh, and uh, there is a little getting used to playing bass say in a, in a hip-hop rap rock you know rap group which i've done and guitar both and you have to just kind of find your space you're kind of like more now now like a feature you're not like a rhythm section rock guy that just plays like every song you play from the beginning to the middle of the end of the song you get into like a hip-hop big show band i mean they may have synthesizers they may have like no bass you know they have all kinds of different uh styles now where you just kind of wait for your part and then you you play when it's time for you to play um and then, of course, country, you know, I, I did a little bit with country music and that was that was fun. But I mean, I've done a lot of different things over the years, but pretty much I've concentrated on the golden era from about 70, you know, 60, probably, you know, 67 through 77. That era was where I cut my teeth and that was the classic rock golden era. And that's kind of what my expertise is, both on bass and guitar. Uh, after that. I got into disco a little bit. It's funny, my, my first record deal kind of bombed and the band got picked to be a rhythm section on another project in Europe, just out of nowhere and it sort of saved us because you know our record bombed, we had no income coming in. So we started making disco records in Europe and got a number one hit over there and did quite a few projects with that that bunch. It was called LAX. You can, you can look it up on YouTube, LAX, just like the airport. And we had a bunch of disco tunes and uh, it was the same band called Pieces which is also on YouTube, which was my first deal. But, you know, sometimes you just have to evolve, you know? I mean, even when rock and roll first started, all the players that were playing on that stuff from 1947 to 1951, which is kind of an era that nobody knows about down on Beale Street in Memphis, all those guys were jazz players. They were all jazz, bebop, or swing players. And what they did is they just adapted their smaller rhythm sections and their boogie-woogie to to meet a need for a certain sound of a music that they detested. They didn't even like it, but they still went out and did it. In fact, the very group that went out and backed Jackie Brinson on Rocket 88 were the Calvin family band and they were all jazz guys, but they just needed the money and they played it so good. You know, they, you know, Sam Phillips just hooked them up and they went out and supported the tour <laughs> for Rocket 88. And I believe I heard you, it was you tell the story. And I know your mother-in-law was a radio DJ as well. Yes. But so I think 
that's where you heard the story from, and you can maybe tell the story here that E.B. King was actually a DJ prior to getting more bookings. Yeah, to he play started out in the churches, and then he played a few juke joints, so he was working. But he didn't get famous until he went to WDIA in 1949, and Christine Spindell, who was the um, white, uh, it was a white station, they just decided to start putting black people on that radio because they were floundering, and they were trying to get into the black community uh, advertising marketing share to see if they could make any money doing it, and they did. They were the very first one in history to do that, to put black people on the air and let them run their own shows. So he went over there after playing with Sonny Boy Williamson across the river, WKEM, if I'm not mistaken, or maybe, maybe, I mean, that was Dewey Phillips um, station. Anyway, Sonny Boy Williamson was the first black guy to ever have a show. And it was called the King Biscuit Power Hour. It was King Biscuit Flower, oh, King Biscuit Flower Hour. And King Biscuit Flower was his, uh, you know, advertiser. And he had BB on one night. And they talk, and he says, well, you know what I hear over in WDI in Memphis that they might, they're hiring black folks to run their own shows. And he was like, huh? He goes, okay. So he goes over to WDI and he auditions, and they've never heard any music like this before because, of course, they never played any race music on this station. They were just playing the, the normal, typical stuff. And they didn't know what to do with him. You know, they just said, well, this is what we're looking for. We're looking for something that will, you know, attract a black audience and, and attract black advertisers. And so they decided to put him on the air and he became a DJ and started spinning Louis Jordan, you know, uh, Big Joe Turner, uh, T-Bone Walker, you know, and a lot of other race music stuff that at that time were very difficult to find. And nobody in the white suburbs had ever heard this music before. And so B.B. King brought that to the white suburbs by way of the radio waves. And, and while he was there, he wrote a jingle for the, another, another advertiser. It was some kind of snake oil called Pepticon. And it was so, I think you could hear it on YouTube. It was so catchy that he became popular as an artist through the, the uh, commercial jingle. And that's when he started getting more calls because the radio, of course, was broadcasting all over the tri-state area. And people going, I really like that singer. And I like that song. Find out who that is. Maybe we'll hire him to play our, you know, our theater or whatever, you know. And then he started getting work. He had to leave the job as a DJ and start going on and touring because of the popularity through this jingle that he'd written. And you know, it's funny. Uh, we were, like I said before, chatting prior to hit record and everything. <coughs> and no, oh, all good. But uh, that, yeah, I'm a blues guy, and I actually had a chance to see BB play about 15 minutes from where I live mm -hmm. at, it was like a high school slash theater sponsored by a local bank holds 2,500 people, whatever the case may be. But to sit there and be able to hear him play live from the fourth row was, I'm talking, thinking maybe eight months to a year before he passed. Oh, okay. So it was, yeah. but it was still cool to say, Hey, I saw him. Yeah. He was starting to slow down a lot then, but, you know, that's just, that's what happens when you get older and expect, you know, diabetes and all that. Yeah. Hey, had a steel chair, came, they put yep. it on the stage room, sat there and just sat yeah. and played and yep. full band, the whole deal. So, yeah, Diane and I got to, you know, of course, Diane's family grew up with him. They all, you know, Diane's father, my, my wife's father was a great trumpet player. He used to do a lot of horn arrangements for BB for a lot of his records. 
And uh, so they've been friends forever. And of course, uh, her mother, as you mentioned, who was a DJ also on WDIA, Martha Jean the Queen Steinberg, you can Google that, uh, used to break a lot of BB's records. So they became very friendly. And he was always trying to marry my mother-in-law because she had divorced her her husband at at that time. And he he knew she was available, so he kept dogging her, (laughs) trying to get her to marry him. But she just said, no, I don't need no other crazy musician in my life. So she just said, let's just be friends. But, and they were. And in fact, there's a, an album that he did called Sweet Little Angel, if you can find it. And on the cover is a female that's dressed in a, a Native American getup. And that's my mother-in-law. That's Martha Jean. Nice. Now, so we, we met with him on the Peter Frampton uh, guitar circus tour, uh, I don't know, five years ago or something like that. And uh, we got to go back in his tour bus and hang out. And, you know, my daughter never met him. And that was really fun. And, and uh, of course, Diane had known him for years. And uh, it was nice to see him, but he was slowing down on that night as well. And it was like, it was kind of sad because, you know, what a great line. Uh, and of course, you know, you just can't keep bringing it every night the same way. But he still was great. And I'm glad you were able to see him because that was like your Jimi Hendrix. Because I got to see Hendrix twice, which is a big deal for me. But oh, yeah, yeah. You, you got to see BB, and that's great. Yeah, I, I've gotten to see over the years, I've been fortunate. And I know, you, I believe you've played with him. Kenny Chesney, Tim McGraw, yep. Garth, you know, the list goes on and on. BB and, you know. We even got to jam with him at Tootsie's one night, like in a, in a bar situation. That was, that was wild. Uh, after we'd done the Ryman one night for uh, you know, a television show at the Grand Old Opry, he says, yeah, let's go down to Tootsie's and play a little bit. So we all snuck into the back door down there and got up on stage and then the whole town went, ooh. And so the whole music row was just full of people out in the streets and we, we couldn't even get out of there. I mean, it was like we couldn't get off the stage physically because people would not leave us. It was it was something. But he's he's the real deal. I like Kenny. He's 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 a he's a for real artist and he's sincere and he's got a lot of passion. And uh, it was a pleasure meeting him and playing with him. Well, speaking of the Romney or no, playing in Nashville and the different uh, venue, some of the iconic venues. Is there a particular city or venue that you really enjoy playing or have played? Uh, You're asking me what my favorite venue is? Yes. If you have one, I know it's hard to choose. Uh, Well, I'll the the Red Rocks first. The main reason is that I'm a fisherman. And when I go out on the road, I'm always fishing. So uh, at Red Rocks, we used to do our sound check, and it's just magical out there. Plus, I have Native American background uh, way back (laughs) during the Revolutionary War days. And uh, it's a very spiritual area. It's a burial ground. It was a meeting place for multiple tribes. Uh, It's a natural amphitheater. Uh, When you walk around the the property um, in in the middle of the later afternoon, you can definitely feel a vibe of spirituality there. So I would walk down from the stage down to the Morrison Creek, which is down at the bottom, then that little town of Morrison, and catch rainbow trout on a fly rig before we'd play. And usually I'd be still fishing when the opening act would be playing. I would start back when they were playing. <laughs> now, how many times since you say you've done that, would somebody have to, Kenny, let's go, come on, we need to be ready to roll. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I go. In, what I do is I go into the Morrison Bar, I think it was called the Teresa, and I just kind of hang around and meet somebody real quick. So are you playing the show? To, are you going to the show? And they go like, yeah. And I says, can I get a ride back up to the top of the hill? Because it's pretty steep. And it goes from about uh, it goes from about 7,000 feet to about 8,200 feet, I think. 
So you can get pretty huffy puffy, and I don't want to get too wore out before I have to go on stage and perform. So I, I hitch a ride with one of one of our audience people back up, and they drop me off. In fact, they wouldn't even believe who I was, you know. And I go like, well, you know, just give me a ride. And of course, they'd see me on stage. I get an email from them a month later, like, that was really you. I can't believe it. You were on stage. <laughs> it's pretty funny, because you know they just see a guy with a fishing pole that's been fishing, and they go like, that's not a rock star. That's some normal person. Oxymoron kind of thing going on there. Yeah. But yeah, Red Rocks is great. Um, I like Wolf Trap. That's a fun gig. Uh, that's in D.C. In D.C. just over the Virginia border. Uh, Shoreline's always a hoot because it's all the, you know, the deadheads and people up there. That's the southern end of San Francisco Bay. And then close by there is another group called the Mountain Winery, which is an old Paul Masson winery that's been converted into a small theater but it's kind of cool and there's a lot of great hiking around there and it's up on a mountaintop and that's really fun that's outside of saratoga uh, california so um you know there's just, you know and then if you want to talk globally i mean geez i mean uh, you know carnegie hall was wonderful and uh, uh royal albert hall in london was amazing so but those are just those are different. They're not like sheds because we're kind of a shed man. So when you do those big indoor theaters that, you know, huge, huge internationally known acts of play, uh, they're usually union run. They're kind of stodgy. You know, it's not like a fun hang, but it's just an honor to be there. But something like Red Rocks, it's just a fun, it's just so fun. Well, you mentioned uh, before we were talking about uh, a wide range of styling with your music over the years you've done romantic ballads and blues hard rock reggae you name it country yeah. we've hit that on is there a particular favorite do you have playing or is it they're all like your children well depends on the instrument um if i'm playing bass um i like to play a little more r&b kind of tinged music and that's why fly like an eagle for me uh, so is uh, one of my more favorite tunes to play on bass. Um, but it was also one of my favorites on guitar as well because I was able to play some funk guitar and Steve used to give me a solo on it. And if you go to my website, kennylewis.com, you can hear a solo that I did uh, at Shoreline. Uh, in fact, Joe Satriani was sitting in that night with us. And uh, I could play just about any kind of rock and roll. I, I mean, I really like putting on a Gibson too sometimes other than the Strat and doing like ACDC kind of stuff and Led Zeppelin-y kind of stuff and Cream, Power Trio kind of stuff. That was where I grew up, you know. And uh, But if I got a big box with a wound G-string, I'm playing West Montgomery. I'm playing Joe Pass. I'm doing jazz, you know. Um, I'm not really, I don't gravitate towards country, but if it's a really good country band, you know, I'll put Italiana, do some chicken picking, and that. But it, it's not what I grew up with. It's, it was something I learned over a period of time. So, um, like I said, it depends on the instrument. Well, we've danced around it a lot, but it's been mentioned playing with Steve Miller for many years now. How did you get, and I know this is an obvious question, how did you get involved with Steve and... I heard you actually turned down the job at first. I turned down the what? The job, the gig. 
no, I didn't turn it down. I just had to a little debate all, there all over it for a couple of weeks. I had to make up my mind because, I, like I said, I was a studio musician. I was doing making double scale. I was getting benefits. I was, you know, thinking about buying a house, starting a family, and just staying in LA and not touring. You know, I'm, it was something that I moved to LA to become. But while I was there my singing and songwriting started to come up more and I started getting record deals with bands and going for, you know, being kind of like a star, I guess. Not a star so much as just a band member in a successful band. How's that? Um, and when that occurred, I realized that there was more money to be made in that area. And so uh, when Steve came along, I'd already had three records that I'd written on and sang on and uh, none of them took off. And, he came along and took eight, eight songs that I'd co-written with a guy named Gary Malaber and a guy named John Massaro. And he liked this. He liked the song so much that he, he liked the masters. He liked what we had recorded in the studio on our little eight track. And he wanted those tracks for his new album coming up. This is in this, uh, around this time in 1981, which I guess takes us to 39, 39 years that I've known him. Uh, and he wanted to, uh, he wanted to keep those masters, so he transferred the 24-track 2-inch, took them to Capitol, and just kept building on top of those tracks. And I had played bass and guitar and all those demos, so that's how I got in the band, was by way of me being a peer who was a songwriter and supplying a need for him for material because he was dry and he was desperate to deliver an album on time for Christmas uh, in 1981. And so I met him as a peer. I met him as somebody that he needed my services. So it was, I didn't have to audition or anything. He just needed my songs. And, and but the fact that I played on my own demos was fortunate because that's how I got on the record as a player. Because I didn't go in there and like re-record everything. I'd already done it, you know. And he just asked me one day, called me up. He got my number from Gary. He said, why don't you just come down and help me finish this record, you know, and give me some ideas. And I like your playing and, you know, help me help me with this record. He didn't ask me to join the band then. He just asked me to come down. And so in between my other sessions I was doing, I was going down there and sort of giving my two cents on ideas on engineering and, you know, guitar overdub ideas and whatnot. And uh, that's how uh, the song Abracadabra came about because he was trying to get a solo done on it. Uh, it was the last, one of the last things he was doing on the record. It was an old song that was called Macho Children that was left over from an album prior called Circle of Love. And he'd rewritten the lyrics to Abracadabra and it was, looked like it was gonna be a pretty big song. And he was really mulling over this solo. And that's when his girlfriend at the time walked into the control room and he did a cat call on the guitar neck. And after three days of laboring over guitar solo, the sound effects he was doing, just expressing himself to her, because he didn't, he didn't have a talk back mic. He was just at his guitar. He was like, woo, woo, you know, like, woo, baby, you look good. And all this stuff, you know. He was just expressing himself through his guitar and giving approval of how good looking his girlfriend looked in the control room. And when he did that, that's when David Cole and Gary Malibu and I all looked at each other and said, whoa, and we hit the talk back. We said, that's the stuff you should be doing. You know, just do a bunch of sound effects and we'll place them inside the stereo uh, image and uh, you'll have this really cool guitar solo just with sort of sound effects. And then Byron Allred, the keyboard player, came in and did the whip on his Prophet 5. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and voila, we finally finished the record. <laughs> but that's how I got in the band is that he just called me one day and said, look, I'm doing the pictures for the album cover. We're planning a tour you're all over this record. Why don't you just come out and help us promote it? And I didn't have to audition or anything. Well, you mentioned there about the sound effects and, you know, 
at just talking in the studio, hey, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? All that fun stuff. Do you think that helped because you had the experience as a studio musician to you you understood that process, not that Steve didn't, but you had right. not only that, but I actually I actually build I was actually building uh, both guitars and amps with manufacturers at that time. So I had a mechanical knowledge of the instrument and I had taught him how to tune his Strat with a tension release sort of technique that Eddie Van Halen used to use before he had a locking Floyd Rose system. And then what you do is you just tune each string separately by taking the, the vibrato bar and taking it all the way down to the body, just bound. You know, all the way down and you just tune each string separately that way until they come back and tune every time the springs that are in the back pull the strings back so you get springs and strings with tension that are floating around in outer space and what you do is you get an equality of those two and if you can get it in tune just right to where it always comes back in tune every time you drop the tremolo bar you can do that on all six strings individually it takes a little while because you have to start at the low and go to the high and then go back and do it again because every time you do it the springs and the strings have to equalize and so i taught him how to do that and he was so excited he just kept wanging his wang bar all the time because it wouldn't go out of tune because he'd go well this is great these things always go out of tune but not all i gotta do now is go ball and we all come back in tune so that was one of the reasons why he was doing all of it because he was just for the first time really enjoying a fender stratocaster that stayed in tune without a locking system so it was pretty funny uh my friend steve sykes actually showed me how to do that he had learned it from eddie and he passed it on to me and steve sykes is a famous engineer now in los angeles well i just you know Got me to do a double take there a little bit with the term wang bar, as you were. Yep. Uh, <laughs> Tremolo bar, wang bar, toilet <laughs> stick, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> oh, yeah. We can have some fun with that. That's for sure. Yeah. But over the years, obviously, I know there was a few from like 87 to 93 that he was, Steve was off doing some jazz stuff. And yes. you, you went off and were doing other things. And the yep. band's popularity. It was in 87. Yes, uh, there was a uh, resurgence of a college audience that picked up yes. on Steve and the band mm -hmm. and all that stuff. What has been the biggest change you would say that you've seen in the audiences over year over the years? Well, that was one of them. one of the things you mentioned was that uh, the compact disc came out in about eighty seven, eighty eight. And they re-released Steve's greatest hits album, which is, had always been vinyl on compact disc which was a big deal then and you know as kids are they're always you know hip to high tech you know new technology and that was a new technology at the time let's you know cds was a big deal and it was digital and um so when it was re-released a lot of young kids bought his records especially the kids that had grown up around of course their parents who were steve miller fans you know from the 60s so when they had grown up with Steve, when he came out with the greatest hits on a CD, they went, oh, let's go get that. My parents used to play it all the time. It's really cool music. And so they go get that, and they all would turn other kids onto it. And the next thing you know, at the colleges, at a frat night, they'd have a Steve Miller band night where they would just play Steve Miller all night long and uh, on a compact disc. And uh, they got, he got that audience, which was, you know, 20-year-olds, which was really interesting. And... Uh, then they went off and had kids. And so like in the 90s, 
we had another resurgence, a whole other another group of, of kids going to college again now that their parents had heard it. So it just got kind of got passed along. So about every 10 years, we get another new group of young people that find out about Steve. And it's gotten smaller every year. I wouldn't say that it's, you know, exploding. But there still are a, a bunch of young people that join all the old boomers at our shows. And, of course, most of them are sitting in the back. And all the boomers are sitting up front because they're the ones that got the money now. That's pretty funny. And they get all upset, you know, when the kids come forward and they want to get up to the, you know, the stage and go crazy and smoke weed. And, you know, the girls pull their tops up. So all these older boomers, you know, they just, they're just like, you know, hey, let's get the bouncer right here and get rid of these kids because I, I paid big money for these seats and I wanted to sit here and watch Steve. You, know? <laughs> you watch the, I mean, I'm watching all these dynamics going on while I'm playing. It's pretty funny. And then, of course, then there was the advent of the iPhone and, and you know, uh, uh, the whole selfie thing. <laughs> that was interesting. So now you got the boomers. They're standing up. They've never had a cell phone before or a decent camera. And they're turning around there. They got their backs to us while we're playing the Joker because the whole front row is shooting themselves with us over their shoulder playing the Joker because they want to show it to their friends. And it's, it's kind of rude and it's kind of disruptive. And I got to tell you, I mean, Steve at one point, I mean, he was about ready to just quit just because he couldn't control the photos and the videos that were being, you know, broadcast all over the world uh, from his shows that he had no control over because he was always used to having control over his intellectual properties and his likeness. And then when these, you know, you know, the advent of social media and cell phones, all that went out the window. Then Napster shows up, you know, around 2000 and all the file sharing and everything. And then, you know, Steve was just like, okay, that's it. I quit. And that's when he took a break from 2000 to 2004 because he was just so upset at the whole thing. Cause you know, he'd spent a lifetime studying the intellectual property part of his artistry and it all went out the window. Nobody was paying for records anymore. And everybody was just regarding this as just some window dressing for their little TV show on their cell phone. Well, speaking of that, <laughs> and I know it's not new news, but he hinted at the intellectual property and all that fun stuff during the Hall of Fame speech, which obviously that story's been told. Yeah, uh, and there was, more, there was more to that than just the theft of, you know, files. I mean, there, it was the whole way that that board was running that event. That was the main thing that was bothering him was that it just got too commercialized and it wasn't really about the art anymore. And that was his beef. Well, where do you stand on that yourself with uh, that line of art to, hey, there's, there's a business side to things? Well, we live in a capitalistic country, let's face it. And one of the reasons why we're in the situation we are right now with this administration is because you know, money has become the church of the people and they're willing to look the other way and, and turn a blind eye to everything that's wrong about this administration because it might make it, they might make a couple thousand more dollars on their portfolio, you know, and everything else doesn't matter to them. So art is one of the things that got glommed in with Silicon Valley and you know, and all the other big business, you know, like, you know, trading the stock market for petroleum, pharmaceuticals, banking, you know, you name it. I mean, it's like agriculture, you know, <laughs> used to be pork bellies was just sort of like a joke. Well, you know, it's not anymore. I mean, we're all become pork, you know, we're all, we're all marketable and uh, we're also all disposable. And um, 
it's it's unfortunate but you know that particular bunch of people on that board at that time there are some good people on there i mean tom hanks and uh you know gary uh, oh god uh, I, I can't remember his name he was the other producer um are good people i know them personally and they were just trying to bring art and elevate it and, and award it properly but there were some other people on the board you know from rolling stone you know and a lot of big money people and it, it, they were turning it into a business. I mean, the tickets were just ridiculously expensive to go to this thing. It's it's worse than the Super Bowl, and it's supposed to be about art. It's not supposed to be about making a bunch of money just because you're you got these talented people that you know you're wanting to you know take advantage of because you you can't play an instrument or write a song to save your soul. You're just a businessman, you know. And so that's what the trappings were. I think that happened that Steve got frustrated with and he wanted to express you know. Is his experience. My experience was his experience because I never, you know, I never gone to a Hall of Fame induction before. So, you know, uh, I experienced the same things he did. And you saw the same frustrations and. Oh, yeah. I mean, we weren't, we weren't even going to be allowed. A, the band wasn't going to be allowed to play because they didn't want to induct the band. They just want to induct him because they didn't want a bunch of people up on stage like they do. Whenever you have like a band name that has a logo name, you can't really control that at the at the uh, at the Hall of Fame awards because, you know, everybody that's ever been involved with that logo, you you kind of have to have them there, you know. But if you have a name of an artist that's attached to the product in this product, you know, this case Steve Miller, it was much easier for them to say, well, we'll just induct him. We don't have to have all those people giving speeches and stuff. It'll just be him, and they can get to keep the show rolling because it's a two-hour show, and they and it has to be within a certain. Group. They can't have everybody talk. Otherwise, they've got to edit it all out, you know. As you as you saw, I don't know if you saw our induction, but I mean, Deep Purple, I mean, they had everybody in Monkey's Uncle, Chicago had everybody's in Monkey's Uncle. You know, it's like everybody wanted to talk and talk and say hi to their mom, you know. <laughs> it's, just, it's one of those things. So with Steve, they just went, let's just do him. So they were just going to have him play with Paul Schaefer. And he says, no, I want my band to play with me. We're rehearsed. You know, we have our harmonies and stuff. We want to play, you know, the band. Well, okay, but they'll have to sit in the green room and eat ham sandwiches. No, they're going to be treated like everybody else and be on the floor at a table. Well, those are $10,000 seats, even in the back. You know, I don't care. You know, so I went, well, what about our wives? Could we bring our wives? Oh, no, we can't have the wife. You know, it just kept going and downhill and downhill. And then he had picked a really big profile artist that was going to be his inductor. And they said, no, no, you don't pick who inducts you. We pick it. He goes, well, who do you want to? Who do you want to use? And they named the, the group, which I'll, I'll, rename, I'll remain nameless with because last time I, t I talked bad about them, it went international and I had to like, you know, go through all that hassle. But anyway, they didn't, Steve didn't know who they were. He didn't even know who, he'd never even heard their music. He, and, and so when they met him in the hallway, like, oh, Steve, we're so honored. We're be he goes, who are you? I didn't know who you were. And they were so hurt because he didn't know who they were. I mean, that's how stupid it was, you know? Yeah. So all that stuff is what made, so when he came out with that little trophy at the end of the awards and some reporter said, well, Steve, what kind of experience did you have with the Rock and Hall of Fame? And he just like went, what, you really want to know? Okay, get ready. <laughs> and Steve's not a guy that meant words. Yeah. And he just unloaded because he was just so frustrated. Well, speaking of that, have you thought about your legacy and what you've left behind? Uh, left behind as a studio musician? No, no, just overall for all the years in the music business. Being with Steve? 
no, your your personal legacy, with everything you've done. Legacy. Yeah. Well, no doubt, Steve Miller Band gig is the one that gets me the free lunch. <laughs> Let's face it. Uh, none of my other records in the past uh, took off big uh, as an artist, but I have written for television and, and movies and, and got some pretty good sync license money. And, you know, I made some pretty good money doing this business. In addition to, as I mentioned, manufacturing, you know, I was involved with uh, Schecter guitars at the beginning. Dave Schecter and I started the whole parts business before, you know, Boogie and Chandler and all the rest of them. And uh, I was involved with a company called Delta and, uh, uh, and then later on with Rivera, Paul Rivera, Amson, JBL Harmon, their sound systems went like, you know, I mean, I've done a lot of different facets of this industry. Uh, so I have other prideful parts that I've done away from Steve that, you know, I'm very proud of. And then I, mean, I have my own groups here in the Central Coast, and I do streams and gigs all the time with that. And then as we just mentioned, uh, the Hang Dynasty, which if you want to check out the Hang Dynasty, you can go to Hang, H-A-N-G, Dynasty, Dot com and that's our website and it's pretty pretty cool uh you know it's it's a celebrity band and um we get hired for a lot of events and stuff and um so that's a fun thing too we just did that last saturday and that paid steve's not touring so my band got paid real good last saturday i don't know what steve's doing but i'm working and i'm making money <laughs> nothing wrong with that so does that sort of answer your question yes yeah uh there's there's facets to my life other than Steve that I've been very satisfied with and that I will continue with, including a new, uh, uh, I don't have a, my YouTube channel has been around for a while, but I haven't really developed it, but I'm going to start getting into that this next month. I have to, because I have to reinvent myself. We don't have a vaccine yet. So uh, get ready, everybody, for, you know, Kenny Lee Lewis's television network <laughs> on, on YouTube. Is that a CNN? Facebook is chasing us out. They don't want us making money playing our music on their format. So if that's yeah, the case, but, fine, I'll go over YouTube. Yeah, instead of CNN, it's KLL. Yeah, exactly. That's a good idea. <laughs> but besides the YouTube channel, where else can people uh, find you? And can you, you still have copies through the website of your book available? You did. Yeah, I have a couple other bands. I have one called Barflies, B-A-R-F-L-Y-Z, as in zebra, music.com, Barflies Music. I have that with my wife, Diane Steinberg, as I mentioned. She is an artist in, a, in, a, in, her, in her own right. She, she is Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. She played it in uh, the movie, you know, Sergeant Pepper. She was Lucy in that. And there's, an, there's only been one Lucy, and she's it. Um, and she's had, you know, many of her own solo albums, and she's a songwriter. So she's a keyboard player, singer. She does that band with me, Barflies. So you can go to barfliesmusic.com, look at that. We have videos and whatnot. Then I have another band, which is kind of a classic rock band around here locally called Friends, F-R-E-N-Z, is in Zebra, music.com, Friends Music. And that's a classic rock thing. Not unlike what we just did last weekend, but uh, it's more local here. And then I have a book out. I, I'm also a novelist. I'm trying to become a writer. And so if you go to Amazon and go to Skeleton Dolls, Children of the Tower, Kenny Lee Lewis, I have a sci-fi novel, whatever. It's kind of a Stephen King, Dan Brown kind of a thing about female twins who speak in their own language since they were little. And they can heal people with that language and raise the dead and do all kinds of cool stuff. So that's an interesting concept I'm working on. So I'm, I'm into a lot of different things. I'm, plus, I was a cook, there's a rock and roll cooking show I'm working on. That'll be probably attached to the YouTube channel. 
that was something that Scotty and I were involved in back in 1990. And it's a great idea. And I still think that we could do a, a celebrity rock and roll cooking show. And we're working on that. Trisha Yearwood, watch out. Because I know she's got her own cooking show. Yeah. A lot of people have tried it. Um, we would perform as well. We would not only do the, the dishes, but we would actually perform on the show. So it would be a rock live performance show mixed with a real recipe that's legit. Then and, uh, you know, of course, uncen- you know, uncensored <laughs> F-bombs and, you know, everything you want. It would be fun, you know. It'd be like, what's his name's gig? Uh, Daryl ha- Hall from the Hall Notes. Yeah, with his show. He started, he started doing it after we st- did it. We did our pilot in 1990, and then he started doing it. But he he concentrates more on the music, which is fine. You know, we would concentrate more on the cooking. Then obviously, there's the personal website KennyLeeLewis.com. Find all that stuff there yes. too. And that's just my regular website. It has my my biography and all of the things. And so now, do you play? Are you a musician? A little bit. Yeah. Guitar, so you're just drums, you ukulele. Embracing this genre. Yeah, a little bit of everything. And uh, we were talking uh, previously, and with the little ones running around, the, the three-year-old likes Disney stuff on the ukulele, so that's quite interesting. Ukulele? Yes. That's how I started. I was too little to play guitar, so I started on ukulele when I was about seven or eight. Right on. So I'm actually looking at purchasing a new one. So we'll see how that goes. Mm-hmm. Just got to, like you were talking about. Well, there's a lot of them. And there's a lot of good ones. I mean, there's a lot of good ones from, from Asia that are good quality. Get one from Taiwan or something. Something that's, you know, good quality. I'll go look into that. Yeah. But Kenny, uh, thank you so much for the time. I appreciate oh, it. Oh, my pleasure.
Not all football helmets are created equal. Zenith, the industry leader in protective technology, is the only helmet in the game with adaptive head protection featuring a shock suspension system that can move independently from the helmet shell. Headquartered and developed in Detroit, Zenith is committed to player safety and revolutionary innovation. Zenith is proud to protect athletes at every level from peewee to the pros. Learn more about the Zenith difference at zenith.com. That's X-E-N-I-T-H.com. Wow! Thinking your day is bad and really looking to make it worse? Why not try downloading this new classic set of music that will be dropping so far off the charts there's bound to be injuries. Now that's what I call depressing. It's gonna make those who are even close to having the slightest glimmer of hope wanna jump off the highest of planks. For those that are getting Now That's What I Call Depressing, you'll be getting that song that reminds you of that relationship with those cougars, Wrinkled Ladies. For those who weren't really into cougars, but those who had that special friend while Sincere Black 2B, we got for you this clusterfuck that will put you in therapy for years to come. With cheeks wide open. <laughs> Who the fuck writes this shit? Oh hell, we're still recording this commercial. Always with you, it cannot be done. Those that rather have it out than in. This loaded hit will be dropping soon. Farthing in the USA. For those who place their order by calling or ordering online, the next hundred folks will receive their choice of either a noose of good quality that won't snap, an installation of a new outlet next to your bathtub so you can now blow dry your hair in a full tub. Or the choice of the right gang to just beat the fuck out of you. Call us today at 1-800-FUCK-THIS. Hey y'all, this is Bree Bagwell and you are listening to Crazy Train Radio. 